And then my wife said, Dean, there's a conference. I forget where it was, but she's like, Dean, do you want to go to this conference with me? And I think at that point I was married maybe 15 years. And I said, no, baby, I do not want to go. And she's like, oh, let me say it a different way. Hey, baby, you're going to a conference with me. (laughs) And I'm like, you are correct. That does sound different. And I said, Melanie, what do you think? Like, what if I quit Merck and do this coaching thing full time? And I was fully prepared to get into a fight. (laughs) And she's quiet for a couple seconds. And she says, you were made to do that. You got to go for it. And I was like, that is the wrong answer. Like, we need to argue about this. I'm a senior executive. We're making lots of money. Like, I've made it. I can finish a career here, full pensions, get the gold watch, get all, I've got more plaques on the wall. And just like that, you say, you were made for this. Let's go for it. She's like, Dean, what's the worst that's going to happen? She's like, we'll just lose everything. We'll lose the house. We'll lose all of our finances. We're smart. We'll figure it out. And two weeks later, I did it. My parents were upset. My grandparents cried. My dad's statement was, who the hell is going to give you a nickel? Like, what are you doing? He was our third employee. If you ask my dad today, this is his idea. But that was a wild moment. You know, I I got so lucky in finding my wife for her to say, you got to go for it. You are made for this. Wild, Gary. Never in a million years would I thought that this is what I'd be doing. And it's perfect. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Now, in a world where organizations are facing into huge volatility, challenge, and uncertainty, we need leaders who can dig deep and go searching for the powerful truths that unlock the potential in all our people. And if you're looking for someone who's an expert in going digging, Find yourself a person who cut their teeth as an undercover agent in the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA. That's where world-leading executive coach Dean Miles started out, before transitioning into the pharmaceuticals industry with global giants Pfizer and Merck. Now, Dean is the founder and president of Bridgepoint Coaching and Strategy Group, a global executive coaching firm. He spent his career unlocking great leaders in the process of producing exceptional results. He's coached CEOs, executives, managers, and supervisors across the world in pursuit of his core values of awe, adventure, and advocacy. Dean is one of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 coaches, a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Coaching, and a member of Forbes Coaches Council. 
Dean has been on several non-profit boards, including Africa Renewal, whose mission is to enhance the holistic development of the child and community through support systems that ensure next-generation leaders. He and his wife Melanie have four children and currently reside in the very beautiful Punta del Burro, Mexico. I've just seen a view of the beach that he can see from just where he's recording. I'm looking forward to hearing Dean's take on the secrets to success and fulfillment in leadership and in life. And of course, I'm curious to learn about the unlocked moments of remarkable clarity that helped him to shape the path ahead. Dean Miles, it's my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Gary, thank you for a very kind introduction, and I am looking forward to being unlocked, um, as you have done with many of your guests. I am looking forward to it too. I think this is going to be a fun conversation. So you've had a really fascinating career journey. Take us back. Where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you are today? Gary, I was married my senior year of college, heading to law school. Two years out, I had this moment of what am I doing? I don't know what career counselor put me on this path, but just had a moment of this doesn't feel right. I don't want to do it. And I had a connection that had a connection. Seems like it always works that way to work with the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency. And that is really what unlocked me initially. I had so much more to learn. But this idea of instinct, because I have done everything right. I was the son that you wanted. I stayed out of trouble. And now I have hurled myself in the middle of the muck, in the middle of amazing people that have made a bad decision that's put them on a track in their own life. I never thought I would be there. And it was an adventure and adrenaline rush that I never could have imagined. And what was the moment when you went, yeah, this is something that I want to pursue? I was discovering things I didn't even know I had. In high school, I was the guy that was friends with everybody and friends with nobody. So I played football. I wasn't good at it, but I was friends with everyone. I played the violin from fourth grade all the way through high school. I sat last chair. I wasn't good at it, but I knew all of them. I was president of the chess club. I was the worst player, but I knew everyone. I could lead. I just couldn't do. Now, I took all of those skills of being friends with everyone, and it put me in a position where I see who they are different than what they're doing. And so seeing, and I kind of said that, I'm talking about being amongst these individuals that made a bad decision, good people that made a bad decision and put them on the path. And that started to really come out of me, of my authentic self ability to connect with people. I see people and not for what they do. Where did that come from? I think my mom. (laughs) My mom was really, really good at that. My dad was a chemical engineer. I think he thinks in fractions. His favorite companion is a slide rule. I'm sure my allowance was done with an abacus. My dad, very high IQ, very low EQ. And my mom was masterful with people. We moved from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when I was nine years old, to Chicago. And what a difference in culture. So my mom, her name is Loretta. 
didn't even sound Southern. I don't know why Loretta sounds Southern, but Loretta. So we moved to Chicago and she was just this Southern belle up there in Southside Chicago. And a lot of wrong first impressions and a lot of judging that was happening there. But my mom was just great of just winning these individuals over. Just very kind, very humble, amazing hospitality. I'm sure that that's where I got it from. It's really interesting. I do a lot of work with Gallup Clifton Strengths, and mm. there's one of the Clifton Strengths which is called individualization, which is a talent or a strength for seeing and appreciating what is unique about each person. I don't have it very high, so I'm actually not a great reader of people's unique skills or facets. Mm. My wife has it super, super high. And the way she describes it is she says, I spot idiots really fast. And she says, <laughs> and, and you don't. She says, you don't. So she says, that person you've met that you really like, I'll tell you that in a few months' time, you're going to turn around and go, oh, I didn't read them well. I knew immediately they walked in the room. Right. And it's interesting that I've appreciated through seeing that, I understand that she's seeing a thing that I do not see. Yes. And then from that, I've appreciated that there are people who read people. We all read people in different ways. But there are some people who are just exceptional at reading people in almost a subliminal way. They don't go, here's all of these tangible, above-the-line conscious things I'm seeing. You just yes. read people. And I think yes. I hear a little bit of that in you. In Project Aristotle, I think a lot of us as coaches use this. Charles Duhigg kind of wrote this, I think, in the New York Post or New York Times. It was a study that Google had commissioned of what makes a high-performing team. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they used in this study, I believe it's called the Mind's Eye Test where you give 36 images, I think they're actors and actresses, with four emotions, and you see from the top of the eyebrows to the bridge of the nose, and you are to choose one of the four. I got 35 out of 36. Wow. So this individualization. Now, let me tell you what I was missing that I learned from my daughter. Of those strength finders, empathy, <laughs> I think was last for me. I could see it, but I didn't feel it. Right, right. And my daughter feels everything. Doesn't always see it, but she can feel it. I can see it and I didn't feel it. And she taught me so much. And when you combine those things together, it almost became a superpower for me. And this is a very interesting tangent because I, like you, am very low empathy in this particular mm. view of empathy. So my empathy is 32 out of 34. Yours is 34 out of 34. What does that mean for people that don't appreciate Clifton Strengths? This is a psychometric assessment, an assessment of talents and strengths you can do online. And empathy in this sense isn't, I'm not a nice person or I'm not a people person. It's people with very high empathy in this Clifton Strengths assessment know how people are feeling inside when they're not showing anything outwardly. And people are always amazed when they go, what do you mean? You don't have any idea whether I'm happy or sad. And I go, well, if you're crying, I'll figure out that you're sad. But if you're not crying, I have <laughs> no idea. But that's okay because I use other things that I have to figure out people. Yes. It's a really interesting topic in leadership, actually, because there's such a drive in leadership to say empathy is really important in leadership. My response to that is, when you say empathy, you mean something different. You mean caring about your people. You mean wanting the best for your team, creating a culture where people can bring something or their whole selves to work, all of those kinds of things. 
you don't need to read people's inner thoughts. Some people can do that. Some people can't do that. Anybody can be a great leader with any of these sort of talents and strengths. But it's very interesting. People at their best, people that inspire others are often just really playing to their strengths. And that's what I hear in you, that in some of these roles, it's just played to something that's very naturally you. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Gary. There were some core skills there. And because of people that have come into my life, have helped me develop those and really kind of go up to this from being an apprentice. I'm not going to say master. I think that's still so far away. But in this a guild kind of a process, maybe I'm no longer the student. Maybe. Hmm. I, don't, I don't think I'm even the professional yet. But certainly not the apprentice anymore. One of the things that the DEA training would emphasize is trusting instinct versus obeying instinct. And, and they talk about, they would use this imagery of imagine that there was an individual, an entertainer that has a wheelbarrow, and he's going to push this wheelbarrow across this wire that's over a can. And he says to the crowd, gets them excited, do you believe, right? Do you trust that I can put someone here and take them across safely? And the crowd, yeah, we believe, baby, we believe. And then he says, who wants to go? That's way different. So I think as a leader, as a coach, to put your skills out there, not just merely to the level that you trust them, but to the level that you obey them, get in the wheelbarrow. That should scare you to death. It does me. I love that. Is there a moment, is there a time that you look back to in your, in your time at the DA where you think, this was me having to do that thing? Yeah, discernment in those moments. Because there's no backup. It's not like what you see in the movies, you know, where the hero is just right around the corner in an unmarked van. You're all alone with real people that are going through real stuff. And I remember a, a specific moment where I had to decide in this gray area, do I go left or do I go right? You know, just how, how close to the line can I get without finding myself in some hot water? And it's just an instant of obey the instinct. So there's what I see, there's what I hear, there's what I feel. And I've learned the difference between pausing versus hesitating. To pause it can be microseconds or it can be seconds. Is just so full of wisdom. Yet if you hesitate, it costs you your life and the career that I was in. In the career that most leaders are in, you hesitate, you will lose momentum. And in any given moment, that might be all you have left. So in that moment, I paused. What do I see? What do I hear? What do I feel? I made the decision. It's what the textbook said I shouldn't have done. And it was exactly what was needed in the moment. And then everyone walked away. I often do get letters from some of these individuals that I have run into in my career of, you're exactly what I needed. I needed to get caught because I couldn't get out. And now I'm back on this track of a life that I was intended to live. And I love that. It's a good, happy ending. That's fascinating. 
And the thing that comes to mind when you say that is it feels like there's a connection with a coaching partnership, actually, that in that moment I needed to get caught. There's stark ownership and accountability, maybe for the first yes. time. Yes. And in those really powerful transformation moments in a coaching partnership, there's really stark ownership and accountability. Well, I've never thought of that. <laughs> so you've already given me this might be the third unlock moment. I have never considered what I did in the cover as a coaching type relationship. When I was in sales and respiratory at both Pfizer and Merck, I felt some of that. I was starting to lean into these coach type skills. I didn't know that they were called that, but I've never considered my undercover moments. Nice work, Gary. But isn't that interesting? My background is a professional dancer and being trained by an Italian and a Russian dance coach was one where there was no compromise and we were never going to become the world champions, but we were training alongside people that, that were. And they became the world champions because they were training at a level that made them not just really, 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 really good, but the very best that there is. Mm -hmm. And the level of commitment that you need to put into that and the level of ownership and accountability is extraordinary. And I think that I sometimes felt as a leader and sometimes as a coach, it gives you not a place you want to be all the time, but it gives you a gear to go into for some people in the right moment of, if you're up for it, we can have the, do you really want to go there conversation? And I just wonder right. whether that's there for you. Are there times where you really hold somebody who's up for it, capable of it, really hold their feet to the fire in coaching. Yes. And, and, and I have leaned into that too often and sometimes too soon in a relationship. I'll tell you where I failed and then I'll, I'll give you one that it worked brilliantly. This is an oil and gas industry client. So my interpretation, they tend to be 20 years behind and just kind of social cues, <laughs> very male dominated. <laughs> A lot of masculinity at play. And there's a lot of good aspects to that, but right, it, it, it can go too far. And I connecting with this individual, because I'm not easily intimidated, because I mean, unless you have a gun in my face and calling me a narc, I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen here? So I just, Gary, I came in bold, you know, like Miley Cyrus's song, coming in like a wrecking ball. I mean, I came in with, coaching skills ablazing and just called this guy out immediately. This is my second coaching session with him. And I'm hearing the boldness. I'm hearing the words coming out of my mouth of, I don't know how you still have a job here. I don't know how you haven't been fired yet. This is just gross insubordination. This is gross negligence of your inability to hold the responsibilities. Your metrics are a mess. You have no KPIs. You have no leading indicators. You can't name me any individual. And I'm just out of control. To say the least, the client was not happy. <laughs> Immediately went to the president of the company of who let the bald Yahoo back here? Because I have real work to do. And he was exactly right. And then I had to go on my apology tour. So I've been doing this for 20 years. This was a long time ago. Where this plays into now, I think, and when I'm onboarding someone, I let them know, 
my made up statistic is about one out of every three coaching sessions. I'm going to pull the rug out. Now I'm going to ask you if you're in the mood and because I'm good at seeing the individualization and I'm good now because of my daughter. Thank you, Mason at feeling what they're feeling. I get it right more than I get it wrong of, Hey, are you in the mood? And sometimes they'll say, Dean, I do not have it. Like, I'm drowning today, dude. I need a hug. And so we'll hug it out. But then there's other times they'll say, yeah, I feel spicy. Bring it. And what I find myself, I'm no longer as interested in insights. I find myself not as interested in ability. Because insights are so easy today. I mean, there are assessments galore. Ability. I have met individuals with just forever abilities, and they don't do a thing with it. I know people with very little ability, and they go change the world. What I'm most interested in is, is what is your willingness? What are you really willing to do? Will you really go one breath short of death? Because I know that that's where everything changes. I read a book called Masterful Coaching by Robert Hargrove. And he has a great quote there that when the right coach finds the right leader, sparks fly and history is made. When a coach is willing to get their toes right to the line and a leader is willing to get their toes right to the line. My core values, you mentioned them at the very beginning, awe, adventure, and advocacy. So my first coach, her name is Cynthia Darst, helped me find these three words. My favorite definition of awe is surprise with a hint of fear. That brings out my best. Adventure, climb the highest mountain, who has the best salsa in town? I'm compelled to go do it. And then advocacy. When I put those three things together as a coach, when I can find those three things and call it forth in a leader, sparks fly. And I'm addicted to it, Gary. I'm absolutely addicted to it. I think this is absolutely fascinating. And I tell you what I'm hearing, and I hope that people who are listening are hearing this too, is there's a level of conviction in you. You know who you are, and you know who you're going to work with and the kind of work you want to do and the kind of impact you want to have. And because you know that, you feel this energy that's what i get from hearing you mm. and you know i've talked to a lot of coaches on this podcast and very few of them sound like you which i find fascinating and i love i think that in the world of of coaching and leadership there's an awful lot of people who are in a kind of middle ground that are good and great but they all sound similar they lead in a similar way they read mm. the same books they say mm. the same things all of which are kind of right but sort of other people's ideas. And I'm always fascinated when I meet people where they have that, they have the grounding, they have the foundation, but then they also have their own unique, clear, committed perspective. That's what I hear, which is really interesting. Tell me a little bit about your journey in the pharmaceuticals world and how that added to who you are today. It is such a measured career. Everything and anything is measured. You really get real time at the end of each day an assessment of uh, are you loved or hated? Did you add value or did you add little value? 
And you're able to then graph out where you're leaning toward. So I'm thinking about just the big four personalities, drivers, analyticals, expressive, and amiable. This is going to be shocking to you, Gary, but if you're driver <laughs> and analytical, my numbers were through the roof. Man, I won so many awards at both Pfizer and Merck. If you were expressive or amiable, and amiable was my worst, horrific. And I would get talked to and I get talked to. So they did this really interesting training where they they had 10 cubicles set up with an assortment of these four personality types. So no mixes, just pure, pure drivers, pure amiables. I had to walk in, sell my widget. I had to quickly discover which one they were, sell in that way, walk out of the cubicle, write down, they are amiable, and they had to say, I'm amiable. I didn't do very well, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) At first, then you start to learn some of these cues and doing it in an authentic way. Because I was doing the what, I hadn't yet mastered the how, the tone, the micro messages. My words were right, but my tone wasn't. And when I got it, when I unlocked it, that was the next step. So now I've obeyed my instinct. And now I'm starting to understand these micro messagings and the hows of the speed of trust within these four big buckets. And because I got such great measurements, metrics, awards, it was such a system. It identified the need. It rewarded the hard effort with big checks. <laughs> I mean, this is pre, I mean, this is far my way. Some would say in the good old days, right? There, it needed to have been reformed, but, uh, but I took full advantage of all the, all the wealth and glory that was coming in during those days. That really, really helped me until I hit the roadblock. Just full steam ahead. Curious? <laughs> Very curious. <laughs> so this was mid-2000s, and mergers and acquisitions are happening everywhere. I'm seeing a lot of my colleagues get caught up in that, get displaced, get laid off, and could not find employment. Or the employment they were finding was paying half of what we were making. Hillary Care some first attempts of changing the U.S. health system, which still needs a lot of repair. And I was really concerned. And then my wife said, she was an educator, and she's like, Dean, there's a conference. I forget where it was, but she's like, Dean, do you want to go to this conference with me? And I think at that point, I was married maybe 15 years. And I said, no, baby, I do not want to go. And she's like, oh, let me say it a different way. Hey, baby, you're going to a conference with me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, you are correct. That does sound different. And it was around this educator in the mid-1800s. Her name was Charlotte Mason. I had never heard of her before. And she's made all these observations. And she started to differentiate between data, information, and knowledge. Short-term memory versus long-term memory. And so the lady who was given the lecture started asking the crowd, so those of us that were older, closer to the age of 40, I'm 53 now, asked, how many phone numbers did you used to have memorized? I had dozens. Hmm. How many do you have memorized today? I know my own phone number and I know my wife's number. Hmm. That's it. I couldn't call my own company. I couldn't call my business partner. I couldn't call my own children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just information. 
when I combine the instinct thing, learning, and now this information versus knowledge, I realized that my life really in pharmaceuticals was not really based on knowledge. It was data and information. And I sat back in that lecture hall and all of a sudden just really felt empty. I'm acting smart. I'm pretending to be smart. I mean, I was a senior executive in respiratory medicine. And I really didn't have any knowledge at all. Short-term memory, nothing long-term. No knowledge whatsoever. And that sent me spiraling as I'm watching all of my friends get laid off and couldn't find work. And I attached the label to during my, whatever it would have been, 15-year career in pharmaceuticals, I wasn't gaining knowledge. It was just gaining information and data. And that's a really good example of a true unlock moment because it's so pivotal. You can put yourself exactly back in that moment. You're really clear on what you knew after you had that point of clarity compared with what you knew before. It didn't give you all the answers, but it gave you a critical thing. It reminds me of a conversation I had very early on in the podcast with a professional ballroom dancing couple who had been, they'd been training together for about five or six years. They've each been dancing for 30 years in the US, the US national champions. And they traveled to Italy to see a new coach who was a world-leading coach. And in one of the first lessons they had with them, he said, but you're not on balance. And they went, what do you mean we're not on balance? You know, we've been dancing for 30 years. We are at least on balance. And he went, <laughs> no, you just need to move forward a handful of millimeters. That's all it was. And he said, see how different that is. And they went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wow. And I said, how did you feel? What was your emotion after that moment of clarity? And that's how they described their own moment. And she said, Mariko said, um, I was angry. I was angry, not angry with him, but angry with myself that we hadn't figured that out. We're professional, top championship level ballroom dancers, and we didn't know that we weren't on balance. And it was so close, and it took traveling mm -hmm. halfway around the world for somebody to move us mm -hmm. forward five millimeters. And I think of you, and you know, you had how many years experience in your career as senior executive who knew their way around leadership and a technical field. And somebody's talking about an educator from the 1800s who can say one thing that changes your perspective. I think that's fascinating. I had that myself in medical training. I describe it now as I suddenly realized seven years into an eight-year medical and PhD degree that I was on a path of acquiring knowledge and I didn't enjoy that. What I did like was asking questions. Not even necessarily to know the answers, but I like the asking of questions. And, and I realized that there is a point in your medical career where you get to genuinely ask questions and nobody knows the answers to, but that's another 20 years post-qualification. And so I wrote an article quite recently in Forbes that was on this theme of we value knowledge and data because we can measure it. Yes. But we have no way of measuring a good question. So we don't value it. It's a slight oversimplification, but kind of the principle is the essence of coaching is your role as a coach is to create space and to ask questions you don't know the answer to. It's a different thing that is incredibly powerful if deployed by the right person, the right moment with the right 
coaching. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, I, here's why I'm laughing. In that spiral of I, I'm not acquiring knowledge, I just have memorized a lot of information, a lot of data. My wife was was rightfully concerned. I then read this quote by Samuel Johnson. And his quote is, we need to be reminded more than we are instructed. Because I was an average student, and I think with laying on a couch with a therapist, I don't like pursuing knowledge either because when it's measured, I usually get a C. <laughs> and so I had really tangled up this information and this learning process and knowledge, and I didn't really understand the right buckets to put these into. So this being reminded versus being instructed. I knew coaching was the right vehicle for that. I knew there was an unsettled market out there that were being told knowledge, but not being reminded of knowledge that was already acquired. They have learned things and forgot. They know the proper habits of leadership, communication, strategic planning, decision-making power. They're just not doing it. So I started my ICF training I recorded several of my sessions. I sent them in to this guy named Ron Renal. So Ron, I hope you're listening. Ron changed my life. He doesn't know me from anybody. I sent him my cassette tape, tells you the year. He's listening to my coaching session. He then calls me. He's now dissecting it. And he says, on a scale of one to 10, 10 is adding value. Anything below three, you're doing harm to the client. What do you think he would do? And I lied out of arrogance and said, I'm going to said, Ron, I'm going to round myself down and give myself a seven so I can have some room for improvement. And he laughed. He's like, Dean, I'm going to give you a, th-. he's like, I'll round up and give you a three. <laughs> he said, you've mastered the art of fake curiosity. And I was like, okay. He says, is your background sales? I'm like, it is. He goes, pharmaceutical sales? Yes. Again, he does not have my resume. He knows nothing about me. He completely nails me. And he said, you're really going to struggle here because you're quick. You have found a solution and now you have led your client to your conclusion. That's not what the leader needed. And that's not what coaching is. And once again, I find myself spiraling. But then went back to the awe, the adventure, trusting my instinct, obeying my instinct. And things started to shift started to learn, acquiring knowledge. I got really good at being reminded more than I was instructed. Found the right clients that enjoyed that awe, adventure, and advocacy. And those are good days. Before you got into coaching, and you think through your career up to that point, when was the moment that you felt most authentic, most at home? in who you were and what you were doing? Before coaching, it was the the relationships that I had with either the manager, a nurse, or the doctor at offices that I had called on for years and years and years, of which I wasn't selling the product. I was connecting with them as an individual. So talking about parenting, talking about relationships, talking about owning a business, talking about increasing revenue, those types of aspects of which Pfizer and Merck was not compensating me for. It was in that connection that I felt like I was doing what I was called to do. And I still hadn't heard of coaching before. 
we would have these Palm Pilots and things like that, and it would measure the length of time we would be with a physician. And I believe the average was in the late 90s, around 10 or 11 seconds is what a good rep would get with a physician. It was just long enough to get the signature and give them samples. That was the exchange for the time. And I was averaging 10, 11, 12 minutes. That's where I felt most at home. I had a friend call me who was getting certified in coaching, had not done his homework. And he's like, Dean, I need to coach you. I'm like, what are you talking about, Brian? He's like, I didn't do it. I procrastinated. I got to record one of these things. I'm going to coach you. Fast forward to a couple of months. I'm laying in bed with my wife. And I said, Melanie, what do you think? Like, what if I quit Merck and do this coaching thing full time? And I was fully prepared to get into a fight. <laughs> and she's quiet for a couple of seconds. And she says, you were made to do that. You got to go for it. And I was like, that is the wrong answer. Like, we need to argue about this. I'm a senior executive. We're making lots of money. Like, I've made it. I can finish a career here, full pensions, get the gold watch, get all, I've got more plaques on the wall. And just like that, you say, you were made for this. Let's go for it. She's like, Dean, what's the worst that's going to happen? She's like, we'll just lose everything. We'll lose the house. We'll lose all of our finances. We're smart. We'll figure it out. And two weeks later, I did it. My parents were upset. My grandparents cried. My dad's statement was, who the hell is going to give you a nickel? Like, what are you doing? This is 2006, right before the financial crisis in the U.S., 2007, 2008. He was our third employee. If you ask my dad today, this is his idea. He went to Georgetown, got certification in coaching. He's a really great coach. But that was a wild moment. But you hear the theme from friends with everyone in high school to obeying instinct to this all adventure advocacy, all of these things. And then, you know, I, I got so lucky in finding my wife. So we've been married 32 years now, four amazing kids, for her to say, you got to go for it. You are made for this. Wild, Gary. Never in a million years where I, would I thought that this is what I'd be doing. And it's perfect. I think your wife sounds great. Uh, she is. Uh, she's very lovely. There's two things you said. And I'm thinking about these two things in two contexts. One is the doctor's office and one is undercover DA. Mm. One thing you said was fake curiosity. And the other thing you said was obeying instinct. What does fake curiosity get you in the doctor's office in that 10-minute conversation? Oh, short-term sales, for sure. I mean, if, if you're compensated on market share, mm -hmm. right, dance. <laughs> I say walk fast and look worried, right? I mean, just whatever it takes within some realms of ethics, which is what got pharmaceuticals in so much trouble. Because it was, it was available. Mm -hmm. So with compensation, with taking out some nice dinners, those types of things, there was a lot of fake in that. Mm -hmm. And I was good at it. And in Undercover DEA, what does fake curiosity get you? Well, there's just embedded into the career choice a lot of fakeness, right? Mm -hmm. I'm maintaining a certain level of who I am, but there's a whole lot of it that's made up and I'm just identifying with whatever group I'm with because I just feel like I, you know, I belong and I fit in, and, but I don't belong uh, mm -hmm. and I certainly don't fit in. 
it's so interesting you're picking up on that. Because if I if I go to 2003, August in 2003 was a real hard moment for my wife and I. So 2002, I made a decision because Gary, there were three deans. There was dean at home, there was dean at work, and there was dean at church. And if those three deans ever met each other, <laughs> that was going to be a horrific moment. And I was seeing the writing on the wall there. I didn't like how that was going, but from my years in undercover to my years in pharma, I had so many identities and real concern. So I really worked hard on that. So I sat my wife down. I'm like, I've got to confess some things because the probability of you hearing someone say something, so not awful things, but things that she would be surprised by, my behaviors. There was a lot of snot. There was a lot of tears. We both vomited at some point. It was just a gut-wrenching conversation for me to hear myself say it and for my bride's ears to hear it. And I didn't know she was going to start confessing back. And then what would I do with that information? And she's like, I've seen a difference in you. She's like, I just didn't know why. And I'm like, I've been working on this for some time period, but I need you to know. And my, my cards are just on the table. And she's like, if you can tell me this and trust me with this, she's like, I'll stay with you forever. It, it broke me because John Baldani has a book in his podcast called Grace. And I told that story there. I don't have another, I don't have a better example of that. I did not deserve or earn her response. Her gift back to me was for me to be able to stay in the space of there's one Dean. No more fake. Now, my curiosity is genuine. I'm not saying I don't mess this up, but <laughs> because I'm sure ask my children, they can point. But it's my goal. I work with. I work with some very interesting people, but there's a particular person I'm thinking of that, I, that I've been working with over the last few months who has different aspects to their life that are very different from one another. And the dilemma was, how do I fit all these very different things together? Mm-hmm. And they're different paths. And which one do I choose? And the breakthrough moment was this strangely simple concept of, what if it was all one path? which still allows you to say, I'm not going to have that bit because that's inauthentic, that's fake. But of right. the stuff that is real, that is true, that is instinct, that is authenticity, how do I bring it together in one? And actually, I think I'm finding, particularly in the context of the world we inhabit in, in coaching, leaders who feel really torn between financial success and balance in their home lives and happiness for their children and so on and so forth. It feels like you can't have it all and you can't, you have to choose, but you choose what is on your one path as opposed to constantly feeling like whichever one you choose, there's another one that you're not doing. Yeah. So well said. And I'll be forever indebted to Cynthia Darst. She was one of the first MCC coaches. She was part of the original ICF group. She was out of Kentucky, lives in California. 
When she gave me these three words that so helped me find one dean to bring in the awe, to bring in the adventure, to bring in the advocacy. Because I had awe in one part of my life and I had advocacy in one part of my life and adventure. And to be able to bring those into the one dean idea, it gave me some really easy buckets for me to include my wife in, my kids in, my business partner in, my clients in. It was the clarity that I needed. There, there's no doubt that I'm a healthier me because of it. Here's a big question. Do you think that you could have got there sooner or did you need to go through the journey you went through in order to get to where you got? Wow. Of course, I don't know the answer to that. But if I compare it to other things that I've witnessed in other people, because I'm lazy, cynical, calloused, <laughs> I don't think I would have been able to sustain it if I didn't go the hard path. I think if I just acquired the knowledge right away, I wouldn't value it to the level that I value it. I wouldn't protect it to the level that I protect it. It's so much easier for me to say yes or no to things because I don't want to experience that again. It nearly cost me everything. So I think I answered the question. But, but in one sense, I don't know, but that would be my guess. Oh, that's really powerful. And I think that a lot of people listening are going to be thinking about their own journey, their own path, and are really going to resonate with what you just said. Do you have a concept of a legacy that you want to lead? Is legacy important to you? At 53, I think I'm right on the path where it's becoming more, more so in my mind. The guy I've mentioned, Brian, also a fantastic coach. He's the one who brought me into coaching. His father passed of colon cancer. Brian is the oldest of uh, three boys and a sister. And I'll never forget what he said about his father. And his father is Glenn Reinhardt, great man. He said, the gift that our father gave to us was the gift of a good name. And I just, that so resonated with me in that moment that I've told I've told Melanie, I've told the kids, that's my goal. That will be my gift. I want you guys, I want to give you the gift of a good name. That When they hear our last name, it means something. And so that's, that's becoming more important to me because I'm seeing a lot of men not give that gift. How can people find out more about you and the work that you do? I'm on the obvious places like LinkedIn. You could also go to deanmiles.com and find some, find some things. Fantastic. I'm going to send all people through our show notes to find out more about you and to connect with you if they've resonated with the stories that you've told today. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For world-leading coach Dean Miles, it was knowing that there was a different way to live and to lead by applying what he'd learned from others and what he'd figured out for himself that brought him to a hugely successful career in coaching and leadership development around the world. We hear that message loud and clear in Dean's powerful self-awareness. Trust your instincts, obey your instincts, and find conviction. Dean, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. 
If you've enjoyed this conversation with someone who navigated a challenging path to a career in coaching, then check out episode 104 with recovered addict and NBA basketball coach George Mumford. And if you resonated with how Dean dug deep to find new connections and unlock his purpose, then check out episode 37 with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars on Finding the Silence, and episode 53 with fellow coach John Baldoni about discovering grace under pressure. Bookmark these episodes for later. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.